Hello again, this is Trevor Harris, and you're listening to Mo Curious by Missouri Life. Each episode of this podcast draws on recent oral histories to examine and explain the past, present, and future of our 24th state. Mo Curious is sponsored by Missouri Life, a magazine that celebrates explorers and tells stories from the Show Me State. Learn more at MissouriLife.com. Left unexamined, it would seem that our modern lives have always been as they are. This automated and wired world permeates our existence. I invite you to take a deep breath and travel with me to an earlier time in Missouri. It was in 1939 that some 1,500 boot heel farmers and their families organized a strike. They used word of mouth and social networks to get national attention for their cause. To tell their story, we have to go back a few decades and cast our view wider than Missouri. At the turn of the 20th century, cotton was a widely grown crop in deep south states like Alabama and Mississippi. The Americans who planted, cultivated, and harvested the cotton were often born to parents who were born into slavery. At the same time, an insect called the boll weevil was bedeviling America's cotton growers. At the same time, farmers were starting to drain wetlands along the Mississippi River in southeast Missouri. Those farmers imagined cotton growing far and wide in wide swaths of newly cleared acres. The boot heel in the 1930s. That's what inspires this episode of Mo Curious, but that's not what this podcast is really about. If it's about anything, it's about the legacy of that 1939 sharecropper strike, the postscript to racial integration, and the economy and culture that is emerging in one Missouri town. As America grew west, Missouri's southeastern swamps took a hit. It took a big hit. The 1910s and 20s saw dramatic and accelerated land clearance in the area. Where once sat swamps and wildlife teamed, now grew row after row after row of cotton. With modern agriculture on the horizon, the boot heels cotton growing culture of the Depression years of the 1930s remained rooted in a pre-modern era. It took many farmers to labor on the cotton crop. With the increase in mechanization of the 1930s, many landless farmers were forced from land that they farmed but didn't own. Sharecropper was a term used to describe these Americans. Landowners who hired sharecroppers gave them an annual furnish. That was an advance on the inputs needed to grow an annual cotton crop. At the end of the season, the sharecropper paid the landowner back for the furnish, and any remaining profits were split. As you might imagine, this made for a hard life for sharecroppers. Landowners were reported to illegally retain federal crop subsidy payments owed to sharecroppers. The Federal Farm Bill of 1939 completely eliminated payments to sharecroppers. Now these tenant farmers could be hired as day laborers. While this was a more lucrative arrangement for the landowner, it left sharecroppers with no guarantee of a crop to work. They often lost their on-farm housing in this arrangement. And that is why on January 1, 1939, 1,500 black and white Missourians moved from their houses and out onto the highway east of Charleston, Missouri. And there they camped for two months. Thanks to the presence of Depression-era WPA photographers, images of strikers appeared in newspapers across America. Pictures of families huddled under blankets during freezing rain and snow caused First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt to empathize with the strikers in their plight. Homeless and without work, the strikers were peaceful. Initially, no attempts were made to remove from the roadside those mothers and children who went on maintaining their households. Their simple possessions, formerly inside of unheated and unplumbed shacks on area farmers' lands, now neatly lined the shoulder of U.S. Highway 60 between Charleston and Sykeston, Missouri. Sykeston's on Highway 55. That's about 145 miles south of St. Louis and 145 miles north of Memphis, Tennessee. 
Charleston sits 16 miles east of Sykeston on Highway 57. You might think Missouri's then-Governor Lloyd Stark would feel sorry for the strikers and want a better outcome for them. Well, that's not how the Democrat from Louisiana-Missouri saw the situation. He wasn't sorry for the strikers. He was instead embarrassed by the negative attention being drawn to Missouri by those WPA pictures and the First Lady's newspaper column. After two months, Stark ordered the National Guard to move the strikers to a less visible location off the highway. Leaders in the new Federal Farm Security Administration Agency funded housing for the strikers in 1941. That year, the Delmo Homes opened at 10 sites across the boot heel. These homes were the first public housing created by the federal government. The strike was organized chiefly by a black minister named Owen Whitfield. Once the strike was on, Whitfield fled the area, fearing for his family's safety. Whitfield found support initially from a neighbor. Thad Snow was an area farmer who owned and farmed a thousand acres of cotton. Snow, who was white, employed dozens of sharecroppers. He allowed the strikers to camp on the road at the edge of his farm. This act made him a local pariah. Snow recounted his experience of the 1939 strike in his memoir from 1954, From Missouri. The strike and successive resettlement of the strikers was successful thanks to Snow's support, as well as that of St. Louis women's clubs, the Quakers, and students from Jefferson City's Lincoln University. One of Owen Whitfield's daughters is Shirley Farmer. Here, in the 1999 documentary, Oh Freedom After a While, Farmer recalled the poverty conditions that led her father to organize the 1939 sharecroppers strike in the boot hill of Missouri. Dad and Mom had their hands full with all of us children. There were 12 of us, and we worked that farm. Dad worked that farm hard. It was time to pay Dad for that year's work at Christmas. So Dad went to the man, and all he had to give him was one of his old suits. And that's what Dad came back with. My mom was sitting in the kitchen, and he was hurting so badly, he, he just showed her the suit. He said, Dotsie, this is all we have. What are we going to do about the children? I was sitting under the kitchen table. I, I, I love to read. So this is why I heard the conversation. I was the only one in the kitchen at the time. My mama called my dad Red. She said, Red, we've got to do something. What about the children? My dad cried, and that was the first time I ever saw him cry. And he went on upstairs for quite a while. That's the voice of Shirley Farmer. She's one of Owen Whitfield's daughters. He was the organizer of the 1939 sharecroppers strike in the boot heel of southeast Missouri. Here's striker Emma Treadwell in an interview with Davica Thomas. They talked at the 50th anniversary of the sharecroppers strike. That was back in 1989. Treadwell was a child in 1939. Here, Treadwell recalls how she experienced the strike. We were very poor. And now... Uh, my dad, we would work, you know, for the other person. Mm -hmm. And so, as far as I can remember, you know, at 13, you don't too many things come to you. And uh, as, you know, we would chop cotton. My dad and mother, she was sick. And uh, we, it was about three of us that was large enough, you know, to chop cotton. And my dad, he would ply. And it's kind of like we was living. 
Uh, were you sharecropping? Yes, okay. sharecropping. Now, once upon a time, see, my dad was a, you know, a, a farmer, just like he had. When I first can remember back, he had eight mules. Then he got down to four, then to two, then he was just a sharecropper. And how did that happen? Well, me not knowing, I think he would come out in the, you know, holy chair instead of moving forward, he was moving backwards, you know, until they just taken everything from him. The library at Missouri's Charleston High School is an active place. Students pass through on the way to their next class. Some spend study hall reading on couches or sitting at tables studying in small groups. At every break in the school day's period, the bell rings. The office staff makes announcements. And it was on a cold January afternoon that a small group huddled together in a corner at the library. Their mission, conduct a series of oral histories with longtime community members about the legacy of the 1939 sharecropper strike in Mississippi County, Missouri. Honor students in Courtney Taylor's history and civics classes asked seven local residents about their lives and the impact of that sharecropper strike on Charleston and the area. Here, student William Brock shares what interested him enough to take part in the interviews. I am William Brock. My purpose for doing this was because I like to not only make myself look great because I think that I have a very good chance of going to a major university, I feel like I should do as much as possible to make myself look more applicable to colleges and I feel like this will help, especially because the degree I want to pursue uh, is of this nature and this deals with it. And this will also give me experience in the field that I really don't have. And the only reason I'm not uncomfortable in thing because I'm just a weird person so this isn't something that's gonna rise my feathers. Yeah, so I'm, I'm completely fine in this position. Remember Thad Snow, the landowner who supported the strike? He died in 1956, and his land continues to be farmed by his great-grandson. Thad Snow's granddaughter is Debbie Corse. She sat for an interview with Will and his classmate, Vantasia Biles, in the Charleston, Missouri High School Library. There's a house down at Snow's Corner. I don't know if you know where that is. That's halfway between Charleston and Wyatt. Uh, there's highway, take Highway 60 like you're going to Carroll, and you turn left on Highway J, and right there, that's the whole farm right there, right on the highway. So that's where I grew up. My grandfather and my father had many people working for them, you know, that uh, were hired during the 30s and 40s. So they, in fact, we had two people that we, Wayne and I, my husband and I, hired that worked for Thad Snow, and they came in 37 and 36. So they, those people have been around a while. Uh, when I was growing up, there were 100, more than 100 people living on that farm that had houses up, all up and down the road because back then you had to have people. Machinery wasn't as big as it is now, and you had to have a lot of people. And so we had a lot of people that worked on the farm, that lived on the farm. It was like a little community. You know what a sharecropper is? Yes, it's sir. When they, they, they actually, so you give them, say you give a man and his wife 10 acres, they farm it the best way they can farm it so they can make the most crop they can make and then they get part of that crop. Well, when, when the government was going to make them share their money with these sharecroppers, they turned them into day laborers, making the 75 cents to a dollar an hour. That way, when they were just laborers, they weren't, uh, they weren't uh, uh, eligible for this money. 
So that's why they that's why they went out on strike because they they were going to turn them into day laborers. You know, making just and if you do that, you have no interest in growing a good crop because you're only getting paid by the hour. So it's it, it's a different whole different thing. In 1937, there was a big, big flood in the middle of winter. Big flood. Uh, the Missouri, they blew the levee to save Carroll, and they thought the levee north of uh, north of town was going to blow too, but it didn't. But it was in January. It was it was horrible, horrible. You know, people trying to move their livestock out from the water and move their kids and get all their goods and boats and stuff and, and animals. You know, they, everybody had pigs and cows and everything. It was just a horrible, they were freezing to death. So it was a bad thing, but my grandfather said in his book that prepared people for going out there on the highway in 1939 in the winter. You know, they, they thought, we did that, we can do this, you know, so that, that would prepared them to get out there and, and you know bring their kids and their food and their tents and everything and stand there. Nobody could really figure out how they got there. There weren't any vehicles and how they kept getting food and wood for their fires. But in the middle of the night, you know, it wasn't just those people on the highway. It was thousands of people helping them stay there, bringing their bringing their things, you know, so they would so they could be warm and so they could eat. They, they had been planning this for at least a year. This wasn't a spur of the moment thing, you know. They they realized they were going to lose this money from their from their landowners, and they they wanted to protest. I mean, these are smart people, you know. Owen Whitfield was a very smart man. It was the women, you know, in these families that made sure they had everything they needed to stay out there on the road, and they had planned the food and all that, the clothing and everything, the blankets, planned all that way ahead of time. So it's pretty interesting to to get all that done, and nobody knew. Right. Shocked to see people out on the highway. That was Farmer Debbie Course talking about the conditions that led 1,500 Missourians to camp on a highway roadside for two months in the winter of 1939. Their act of defiance preceded America's civil rights movement by 15 years. It launched the first federal commitment to housing as a guaranteed right. Lester Gillespie's too young to have personally experienced the strike. Gillespie did, however, grow up hearing about the strike in his native Charleston. Students William Brock and Vantasia Biles led the interview with Gillespie. Here, he details who the strikers were, what motivated them, and what the strike gave those who lived through it. It was a very diverse group. I mean, it was blacks, it was whites uh, that was out there together because they felt as if they wasn't being treated fairly by the landowners. So you think about this. If, if you have to go, to, if you live in a landowner's house and you farm it for him, and then you got to go to the local store, wherever that may be, and wherever you're living at, and you have to get all your groceries there on credit. Well, guess what happens? You're pretty much indebted to, to those uh, farmers and indebted to the store owners, and you would never really know, you know if you paid your bill off or not. So it was kind of a continuation of, of them to have to depend on uh, other fashions or other people from the community. So, uh, and then in the winter months, of course, there wasn't much work to do. So they would either be trying to go out and find part-time work at some kind, somebody's factory, or they have to go uh, do whatever it needs to do, whether it's shoveling snow. I mean, they, have to, they had to continue to work uh, even in winter months to kind of support their family after the fact. When people start moving to Charleston and living in Charleston, coming from those those sharecropper situations. 
what happened was they started building businesses in Charleston on the west side of town. And so I can remember going to, his name was Dr. Sampson, and I can remember going to an African-American doctor as a kid. You had to go upstairs, you go in there and sit down, he tell you what's wrong with you, or you tell them how, what you feel. feeling. So that was a beautiful thing. And then also we had merchants across the street from Mercy C. Baptist Church yeah. over there with those projects up. Yeah. There used to be nothing but African-American businesses there. Uh, we had a grocery store. Uh, of course, you had liquor stores. But then you also had uh, clubs, uh, entertainment, gas stations. So they said that back in those days, that it would take two weeks for one dollar to leave the neighborhood because everything they wanted, it was right there. We had a cafe for the kids. We had restaurants for the adults. They had found other avenues to have economic growth within their community. Yeah. You had a flat tire, you can go to a tire shop. Yeah. So that, that's, that was the connection. You know, the, the sharecropper strike, it did so much for so many because it gave them an opportunity to think outside the box. Once they did get in a comfortable situation or a better situation that they was in, they knew they had to make a living, and they had the confidence level after all of that striking and seeing some results. They were able to continue to take that mindset further. They just didn't. They just didn't say, "Okay, they gave us uh, a little money. I mean, they gave us a little house, and they gave us a little opportunity." They expanded upon it. That was an excerpt from a January 2022 interview at Charleston High School. Students William Brock and Vantasia Biles interviewed local minister Lester Gillespie about the legacy of the 1939 sharecropper strike that happened right there in their community. The strike was made up of people who farmed. These farmers were inspired to protest by the Depression economy, losses from earlier flooding, and inequitable federal agriculture policy. Another Boot Hill resident who knows about the legacy of the 1939 strike is Sam Story. The Mississippi County, Missouri native was interviewed by Ms. Taylor's student, sophomore Zary Fitzpatrick, about the sharecropper strike. Before we hear from Sam, check out Zary's answer to my question about what interested her about this oral history project. I'm Zariana Fitzpatrick, and I'm here to learn more about the sharecropping and ask questions about it. I'm interested because um, it's my town and towns around it, and yeah, small old Charleston, like I wouldn't believe that this ever happened here. Did you ever hear about the Mississippi County sharecropper strike of 1939? I did, and when I first heard of it when I was a child, uh, you know, most people thought that it was no big deal, you know, that it was, it was just a flash in the pan type thing. I learned later that it was an enormous deal, you know, it was, it was very important and very, uh, earth-shattering, earth-moving, you, however you want to say it. Had World War II not come along, I believe it would have been the impetus for the Civil Rights Movement. I believe the Civil Rights Movement would have been in the 40s instead of the 50s and 60s. And it's crazy that you say that it was a very big deal because if um, the film that we watched yesterday, if I wouldn't have watched it, I wouldn't have understood how big it was too because I've been living in Charleston 16 years of my life and I never knew, heard about it until now, until he gave right. me this opportunity. How is the strike remembered? Uh, I don't think it is remembered very well. You know, there aren't very many people who know about it. And I agree. Uh, 
you know, Thad Snow's descendants, you know, are very interested and they keep the fire burning, so to speak, you know, for his memory and the memory of Owen Whitfield. Um, but, uh, you know, I, for example, I was talking to my farm manager, you know, and, and told him that I was going to come up here and do this. Uh, you know, he's mid-40s. He'd never heard of it. You know, he didn't know what I was talking about. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, but yes, when my age group, you know, we had heard about it. We just didn't understand, you know, how important it was. Right. And a lot of people don't. I agree. Is the strike interpreted differently over time? Uh, yes, I think there's a better understanding of it. Uh, you know, what was involved, the, the characters, the actors, you know, who were involved. When things finally started to simmer down and the government came in and housed the people, you know, not in, not in very good housing, but it, right. at least they had a shelter between them and the sky. Uh, you know, it led to the public housing that we discussed last night. Uh, it was it was a, a huge deal. There's there's a lot to be learned and discovered that hasn't been discussed. Uh, for example, who planned this? You know, somebody planned it, and whoever it was was awfully awfully good at organization. I hope you don't think I'm crazy when I say this, but Thad Snow was obviously involved, although mm -hmm. I don't think he ever confirmed or denied it. Uh, you know, ev everybody knows that he was. Thad Snow visited with Leon Trotsky in Mexico uh, before this whole thing came up. Uh, Leon Trotsky was an organizational genius. Uh, he was a communist, obviously, you know, if you don't know who Trotsky was, but I think Thad Snow probably picked up some pointers and tips from Trotsky. Can I prove that? No. That's just my, what I sense. That's my feeling. That was Sam's story speculating on the organizational underpinnings of the 1939 sharecropper strike in Mississippi County, Missouri. The years after the strike saw new housing built throughout the boot heel for the strikers. Many of these displaced Missouri farmers, however, remained mired in poverty with limited access to retraining or education. During the 1950s and 60s, public institutions across the nation integrated. The 1954 Supreme Court ruling Brown v. Board of Education Topeka declared segregation unconstitutional. Restaurants, pools, hotels, schools, all integrated. The process wasn't always smooth. Well, when I was in high school, there was a lot of racial discord, you know, a lot. And, uh, you know, the fact that they'd cancel football games, you know, afraid of breakout of violence, you know, things like that. Uh, uh, you know, put the school into lockdown, more or less. Uh, Five years after I was gone, that, that seemed to me, of course, I wasn't, wasn't here five years after I graduated, but from the outward appearances, it seemed to me that that had mostly gone away. I mean, I, I, the schools were integrated when I was in high school, so that's a pretty big deal. Uh, my, my dad was on the school board, and he was, he was one of the ones that, you know, got it pushed through, so that was a big deal. And I can remember, the, you know, the first people in my class were black. Could you tell me how uh, it affected the community now that everyone was united? Not everyone was united. One thing that was in Charleston's favor was that we had a, just a wonderful football team and a wonderful basketball team and so these, they didn't care what color you were, like if you were good on those teams. <laughs> you know, and so, it, so we, we were fairly united in that and you know, but uh, I don't. Rem I do remember. My dad was a school board, and there was a 
Helen Curran she was on the school board, and she I, she would come out to the house, and my dad and she would talk about what was going to happen, about the integration and stuff. And we had to leave the room because she talked so rough. My dad wouldn't let us stay in the room. <laughs> but you know, she was a she was a champion, and she she did she did the right thing, and and they got it through. So. Yeah. And uh, like how you said about the sports, I, I said that that is very prevalent today because the yep. sports. Mm -hmm brings our school together because yeah. if, yeah. We didn't, if we didn't have basketball it's still the same way really yeah. yes yes still today huh that's amazing well yeah. Yeah. That's, that's yeah that's it's true it's yeah. true but I can remember my first friend that was black in high school she I think I was about a junior and she was a freshman Annie Varner we was the best friends you know but I'd never gone to school with black people no but at first there were only just a handful there weren't that many it wasn't like that we all got together all at once they just every year was a little bit more integrated so. Debbie Corse and Sam's story weren't deeply disrupted by integration of Charleston Missouri's public schools their experience of integration was informed by the color of their white skin here, the Charleston, Missouri minister Lester Gillespie recalls when simmering racial tension in Charleston led him to participate in a community-wide sit-out. I can remember back in the 70s when we had a sit-out. And what that consisted of, all of the African-American kids, parents, churches, they all got together and came up and said, we're not going back to school until conditions get better. You gotta remember now, we was just in a situation where the where we just got integrated. So it was still a transitional period going on. And so uh we used we as little kids we used to march for a better school situation. And because uh, of course we had Lincoln you know, we had Lincoln High School and elementary and then we had the Charleston. So all of the African Americans went to Lincoln. And then all of the whites went to Charleston R1 School District, which Lincoln was part of Charleston R1 School District. But what it was, it was a situation where uh, when, they, when they integrated, it, it was still some stuff left over as far as us not coming together. And so when that occurred, um, it was a sit out. They negotiated kind of the same way that Whitfield did with the, with the sharecropper situation. Uh, things got a little bit, got got a little better. That was a struggle that we had to go through to get. And and back then we had a strong NAACP. We had a strong, we had strong churches that that stuck together. And so because they had been taught that by the by the sharecroppers uh, strike, they understood what a what a struggle was and how to overcome those struggles. So they united and and uh, here we are. The wheels of racial equality turned slowly for blacks in Charleston, Missouri, and other Boot Hill communities. The former sharecroppers raised families in the Delmo homes, built with them in mind. While low-income residents in the area made gains in housing, their overall economic opportunities locally were shrinking. Changing agriculture dramatically impacted those opportunities. Manual jobs that formerly employed hundreds of sharecroppers disappeared. With time, the mechanization of farming required a lot fewer hands to do the same work. As farm jobs went away, so did much of the local retail industrial economy in Charleston. Such a complicated event can't really be explained in one half-hour podcast, so we'll have to leave it for part two in order to get some deeper meaning on the strike and the legacy of that event in one small Missouri community. 
Thanks for learning with me about this largely forgotten event that had the eyes of a nation on Missouri's boot heel for a few months back in the winter of 1939. My thanks to interviewees Debbie Corse, Lester Gillespie, and Sam Story. The strike was about changes in farming, the nature of work, the role of class and race. Come back for the second part of this episode when you'll hear longtime Boot Hill residents Hunter Eli, Orlean and Irene Braswell, and Tom Graham share their memories of life in Mississippi County, Missouri. That's where in 1939, 1,500 farm workers went on a strike wanting a better way of life. My thanks to the Mississippi County Historical Society for their collaboration. Thanks to Charleston High School Principal Jamarcus Williams, History Faculty Courtney Taylor, and Ms. Taylor's Honors History students, William Brock, Vantasia Biles, and Zary Fitzpatrick. David Katamas shared her audio from a set of striker interviews from 1989. Also, thanks to the producers of Oh Freedom After a While for sharing the audio of Shirley Farmer. You can learn more about the strike by watching that documentary, Oh Freedom After a While, and reading Thad Snow's memoir from Missouri. A visit to the boot heel might also help. It is there that you can see the landscape flatten out and open up. And in 1939, atop the rich soil of the Mississippi embayment, 1,500 Missourians protested for a more economically secure life. Thanks to them for taking a stand and making a difference. You've been listening to Mo Curious by Missouri Life. Each episode of this podcast draws on recent oral histories to examine and explain the past, present, and future of our 24th state. Mo Curious is sponsored by Missouri Life, a magazine that celebrates, explores, and tells stories from the Show Me State. Learn more at MissouriLife.com. The theme music is from the Paul Shin Trio, live at Kansas City's Green Lady Lounge. I'm Trevor Harris, and I invite you to check out my business where I record and preserve life stories and memoirs of folks just like you. Here are examples of my work and past episodes of the Mo Curious podcast. It's online at recollectionagency.com. Hey, thanks as always for listening, and until next time, stay curious, Missouri. All right.